Welcome to CoachCast from IECL by GrowthOps. CoachCast is a source of knowledge, insight, and wisdom for coaches and leaders looking to go further. In our podcasts, we take an immersive dive into the minds of extraordinary people and bring you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and influential coaches and thought leaders. Today's special episode is hosted by our guest host, Jill Livesey, who will be speaking to our guest, Dr. David Drake, founder of Narrative Coaching. David has taught over 15,000 people in over 20 countries. He is the author of multiple books and dozens of articles on leadership coaching and narrative design. Narrative appears to have been a strong thread throughout David's life and work, starting with love of stories in his childhood. A sociology degree that introduced him to the idea that stories were socially constructed and peace and justice work, which acknowledged the value of liberating ourselves from limiting social narratives. David has also worked in the fields of grief, rites of passage, and difficult issues dialogue. With a PhD in human and organizational development, he works as a change consultant and coach. David has founded the Movement Institute with a vision to be the world's leading resource for facilitating real change in real time, and in so doing, plant seeds in millions of moments to create a more sustainable future. I'm sure you're going to love today's episode. Let's welcome them both. So David, I would like to very warmly welcome you to CoachCast. Thank you. And perhaps start by asking you to explain what is narrative coaching? So narrative coaching is an experiential and mindful process by which we listen to people's stories and help them to understand both the, what's happening in their stories, but also to recognize that there's part of them that's bringing the resolution to what they're seeking into the stories themselves. And so we find that in our society, we tend to rush and try to get somewhere in a coaching conversation. And what we find is that when we slow down and use silence and presence, we actually start to notice many more layers of stories that are, that are originally visible to help our clients really understand and hear themselves saying uh, what's really true and important for them, and then harvesting that in a way to help them translate that into action. So hence the idea of you have everything you need before you. Right. So everything you need is right in front of you is our sort of cardinal rule and the one we teach over and over again. And how do you see that being used to good effect in organizations? So in organizations, people have a thousand moving parts, moving a thousand kilometers an hour uh, with a thousand different deliverables and variables. And so what we find is that... um, Over and over again, most of our, particularly our more seasoned clients, don't really need any more training. So we've actually, as a business, by and large, stopped training because we don't find it very effective. And we even find coaching sometimes too slow and too cumbersome. And so what we found more and more is that most of our clients know the right thing to be doing. They know the best practice. They just don't for a lot of reasons. So really our focus right now is in helping clients move to a more optimal state, state of mind, state of being, state of presence, from which they can then make new choices. And so one of the things that I'm most uh, known for is my, my um, lack of interest in goal setting. 
mm-hmm. particularly at the beginning of a conversation because most of our clients have no idea what they really want. And so we, we really want to equip them more with what we call structures for success, which are in the moment, how do we help them make a new choice again and again and again, wherever they are in their day. And over time, that sort of accumulates into a new habit, a new story and a new way of being in the world. So in a sense, that's more like them carrying their coach within them. Correct. And if there was a, we have seemed to have chief officers for most things this, these days, <laughs> if there was a chief narrative officer, uh-huh. what would we, what sorts of things would we see them doing or being concerned about or making happen? So I think one of the things that, again, as you said in the introduction, for me, I've, I've never, this is kind of a double negative, but I've never not been able to see things systemically. And I think one of the limitations of coaching is we over-focus on the individual and, and the, the individual psychology, which is important. And what we know more and more is that most of what drives behavior is not necessarily about the individual, but about the epigenetics of how they got there, the environment in which they're working, the social and collective narratives in, in which they're operating. And so we find that, to borrow a famous uh, sort of quote, that we often end up sending changed people back into unchanged environments. And we know which one wins that battle. It's not the person. And so we found more and more that we want to uh, if, uh, <clears throat> think about narratives more broadly. So if I was a chief narrative officer, I'd be really sort of curious about what are the narratives of the culture? What are the narratives of the different genders, cultures, uh, ranks? within the company and how are they aligned or not aligned? How are they really supporting diversity and inclusion or not? Um, how are they responding to the emerging narratives around them in their society, in their market? And, and more broadly, even the planet. And so I find one of the things that coaches sometimes don't want to look at is we depend on discretionary income for our practice. And discretionary income usually comes from people who have discretionary income. And so oftentimes we end up helping people to cope in systems which are not healthy. And instead of looking at how do we use what we know about change to, to create better ways of working and better ways of relating and better ways of being in community with each other and with the planet. And so I, I see this is kind of a long answer to your question, but if I was a chief narrative officer, I would think about the longer-term social impact of the stories that our people in our companies or, or our, uh, organizations are telling and are those going to be ones that our grandchildren would be proud of. Mm-hmm which is a, a lovely focus. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of coaches, will that will really resonate with them, the mm-hmm. idea that, you know, the, the sense of fruitlessness when you're coaching a person within a system and you feel like that system won't necessarily support them. Right. So I love the idea of the narratives of the organization as a, as a whole. And I, I've heard you say also that um, the more coaches work on themselves, the less hard they have to work in sessions when they are coaching individuals. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I, part of it just came sort of humbly <laughs> through looking at my own practice over the years, and I've been coaching for over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think about where I was developmentally at that stage of my life in the beginning. It was back before we had coaching textbooks or coaching programs, and so we were all kind of making it up in a way. And I, I realized that I was um, working really hard at, uh, with good intent for my clients, but it was exhausting. And as, as time has gone on, I can now coach for an entire day, and it doesn't really tire me at all. 
because I no longer feel like I have to make something happen in the sessions, but rather I'm just there as a witness and a sort of a conduit for what the, what the client is trying uh, to achieve. And so for me, I want to help coaches to be able to work on themselves for, for a couple of reasons. One is our clients can't travel any farther than we've gone ourselves. And so if we want to really hold space for the challenging conversations that a lot of our clients need to have and want to have, then we've got to be able to do that for them, whether it's around grief or fear or uncertainty or lack of knowledge, like how do I actually lead in this kind of world we live in now? And so again, it's not about uh, more techniques it's n- or more tools. We don't need any more of those. We could probably survive the rest of time with the stuff we have now. It doesn't matter. Our clients don't care. Uh, they don't care about what things are called or whose who's methodology is in this year and whose is not. They just want to ha- get some help as a human being to do the best they can with whatever they're being asked to do. And so that requires a, a mature coach, not necessarily by age, but mm-hmm. by you know sort of uh, s- uh, emotional, psychological, and even spiritual maturity to be able to serve our clients in some very different ways. And actually it can, it can be exhausting even thinking about all those tools and methodologies that you feel like you ought to keep up with right. um, rather than deepen with what you already have perhaps. You're coaching with without goals. Um, yeah. I've watched your your webinar, which <laughs> which was great, um, and you know that piece around how you know if we're working that hard in the session, not only are we might we be adding to the to do list, but we're actually jumping on the wheel with them. Right. That I shuddered as I read that because <laughs> you know I certainly recognise moments yeah. over time when you know when I've done exactly that, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, not always helpful. No. And you also talk about how you don't teach anything that you haven't applied to yourself, and you just referred to that yeah. a little bit there. Um, and I know you've experienced some really significant threshold moments yes. in, in your life. What's one of the biggest learnings for you that you've got out of that work applied to yourself? So um, so one of it, one of the ones uh, for me is that when you go through difficult things, it's easy to lose perspective about yourself, about time, about reality. And so I think uh, one of the things that came out of one of those periods of my life uh, was a lot more compassion. And so our fundamental starting point in working with um, our clients is we are talking one human being uh, to another human being. And we don't know what they've been going through. We don't know what's been really happening for them. And so for me, I find that even though I've, I've never had a huge ego, it's, it's become more sub, uh, subtle now. Because you start to realize that in the end, we're all doing the best we can. And so I find that now I end up with a more, um, a more open and receptive stance on reality. I, I no longer... Um, do we need to stop? Uh, I wasn't sure what all that was meaning. Uh, so we, we uh, I think uh, so often coaching gets caught up in trying to create an ideal world or an ideal scenario mm. and, and, and how things should be. And we have all these fantasies through our models and things about creating all, all of these ideal states. And in reality, that just, I think, creates more pressure for everybody. And so what I find is that we, 
uh, in narrative coaching because we focus so much on ourselves as humans and our clients as humans. We end up with this really interesting paradox where our conversations feel more ordinary, and yet they often end up being more profound. They feel much slower, but they actually uh, take less time. So when I do demonstrations now, um, they're generally seven to eight minutes because we don't need more. Most of our uh, coaches uh, spend far too much time gathering far too much information, most of which is never going to be useful, and just adds, adds to the confusion of what's going on. And so for me, through our my you know difficult periods of my own life, I've just really come to be um, convinced that we... Uh, that what we're really after is what is the crux of this person's issue? What's really happening for them? What's really important to them? And helping them put that into perspective and find a way to go make that happen. Okay. Yeah. And you mentioned a demo. Is there somewhere online where people can go and watch you do that? <laughs> uh, there, there will be soon. So we're mm-hmm. rebuilding our entire website as we speak. And one of the things we're going to have on there is a series of demos that we've done over the years. Uh, it's just these technology things take longer than you they think. They do, don't they? <laughs> so, but that by the uh, probably in, uh, by December these will be up on our site and you know, chance to see what that looks like. Wonderful, and we'll add to our show notes that we'll have for the podcast. Yeah, we'll add to that as we'll keep them up to date with sure. what evolves there. Okay. Now you mentioned grief, and mm. and I wondered, is there any situation where narrative coaching? doesn't help I you know and I think about grief I think the old stories you had someone the new stories you don't <laughs> yes um are there any situations where a narrative doesn't work would you say no I thought you might and so can can you explain a little bit I know it's a huge topic uh-huh. in a short time but can you explain a little bit how it might help in the situation of grief as in loss of a person grief yeah so we um I, w- I will say that there are some people, uh, some clients who have a harder time accessing narrative coaching. Mm-hmm. If they're not reflective at all, they're not used to introspection. They're not interested in anything that isn't in the ex- you know the outer world kind of piece. Mm-hmm. But we find less and less of those because people are realizing there's actually a lot going on inside themselves that they need to pay attention to. Um, so in terms of grief, so. We're actually putting together a symposium next year on attachment theory, grief, and trauma, and kind of the ways in which those intersect for a lot of people. And so one of the things that we're trying to do in, in, our, in the, what we do in the narrative coaching model is in the first phase of our model is called situate. Mm-hmm. And it's really just about helping the client to situate themselves in the conversation, in this moment, with their coach, and in their own story. And so we're just helping them to be here now. That's it. We're not trying to figure out why they're there or what the, where they want to go. And just helping them to be here and sort of drop into a state where they actually can do something meaningful in coaching. And in grief, that often uh, shows up as uh, the sense of loss. And so we just meet them in that sense of loss. And what we find is that... Um, and, you know, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the most well-known resource uh, um, on death mm-hmm. and dying, etc. Most of her work has been completely misunderstood over the years and, uh, and sort of bastardizes these things happen when we bring them into the marketplace. Um, but in, in our work, we're trying to help people 
to just understand what the loss of a story feels like, means to them, what sense they're making of that, um, and then put that in the broader um, context of their life. And so in that, we're going to start to discover where is grieving going well for them or something they're managing well, and where is grief proving hard. And so that's what we then drop into search to understand what is this person, and it's one of our our core operating question, what does this person need next right now? And that's all we're asking. We're not interested in where they're going. We're interested, like, right now, what do they need to to continue their journey? And so it may be talking about the lost person. It may be being angry at the lost person. It may be their own their own issues for themselves that are emerging now. And so we're just trying to figure out, uh, our model has a sort of a spiral in it, so we're sort of gauging how, how large that spiral needs to be at this point in time, given where the client's at. And so... We can do this because we're not actually coaching them through a methodology. The, the methodology that we use is really a change process that mirrors how humans naturally change. So then we can look at where are they in that process, what are they going to need next. And so if someone's just starting on that grief journey, that spiral through all four phases of the change process may be quite small because they're just trying to get their whole head and heart around oh, what just happened. And then as they begin to have more ability to work with uh, what's happening, they can sort of expand out that spiral to kind of look at, you know, what's to be learned here, what's to be done here. And so we're we're going, we're just tracing them and following them on on that journey and seeing where we could add some value to them. Okay, lovely. There's some, it's kind of an elegant simplicity in terms of being with them where they're at and working out what next from there when something can seem so enormous. It is the most uh, common piece of feedback we get from, particularly from experienced coaches, uh, that they really can seriously declutter their practice. Mm. And I remember years ago, I had a very a dear friend and a very experienced coach in the UK in one of our one-day programs. All, and it was all experiential. We weren't teaching anything, really. Uh, we were, but not through talking. <laughs> but... Uh, and she was uh, starting in on one of our activities sort of midday. And she had just happened to walk by me as I was standing there as they started. And she said, it can't be this simple. I said, I just shrugged my shoulders and said, well, let's see. And she came by like 20 minutes later. She goes, damn, it is that simple. <laughs> and I said, Fantastic. yes. It's, you know, it takes a lot of development for yourself to make it simple. Exactly. It doesn't come easily, but the more you, or and the more you uh, develop yourself and your own ability to s- w- use what we call radical presence, then the simpler things become. And you realize that all this stuff that you may have learned, um, some of it will be helpful and most of it not. It's not necessary. And a lot of it, I imagine, will have helped you to get to where you yes. are today yeah. in order to have that radical presence. Right, otherwise, you, I mean, if you... It. If you had uh, were doing some repairs and, and maybe a repainting of your house, you wouldn't leave the scaffolding up after the job was done, right? Yeah, you'd take it down because you know it's ready to go. So, I think sometimes coaches uh, depend too much on their scaffolding and uh, come to realize that it's not as important as they think. Mm. And I notice in the way you write and talk that use quite a lot of metaphors, Mm -hmm. which again is very aligned to that whole narrative concept. Mm -hmm. How important is it for coaches to be able to think and talk in metaphors? I I think it's huge because metaphors are wonderful because they 
There are wonderful bridges between the real world and the imaginary world, between sort of logic and emotion, the real and the imagined, etc. And so they sort of provide a way into um, kind of how the client is narrating what's going on. Uh, so often coaches want to go through the front door, but the front door tends to be pretty defended for most of our clients. Mm-hmm. And so we're always looking for side doors, <laughs> ways to kind of get into the conversation that are through, uh, through a material in the client's stories. So we don't bring in our own constructs or our own words for the most part. We use whatever language is there. But we're looking for openings in the story, which then are openings for the client, which are then openings for the issue. And those metaphors are great for that because it's the way it's the way that the person's trying to figure something out, you know. And because they say, well, "Is it like this?" No, no. And they're saying, "No, it's not like that. It's more like this." And oh, okay. So tell me more about this. And so we, rather than try to analyze the metaphor, we just go right into the metaphor, and we'll actually create what we think of as serious play, uh, an encounter with the metaphor itself, as if it's real and in the room. And conversely, if mm-hmm. you have a coaching counterpart who is more that sort of left mode of thinking, yeah. and and perhaps doesn't think so well in let- metaphors. Does that mean it, they might be harder to coach in this way, or there's some way of sort of opening up into that world of metaphors for them? Yeah. So so ones that are tend to come more from their right hemisphere when they're being coached um, are obviously going to be using more metaphors often in their own language. And so then we can use the symbolism of metaphor as a strength to kind of go into a space that's familiar and comfortable to them. And the challenge for them, the dissonance for them is to make that more concrete. So what does it actually look like if you did that? Or, you know, um, so let's talk about how that would apply to your actual life. And conversely, if you have somebody who speaks more in a traditional or sort of typical left hemisphere style, they're still using words, right? They're just using different kind of words. And so we can bring them, in, go into their words and say, well, can you give me an example of that? Or what would that look like? Or does that remind you of anything? And you're bringing them from their words into the pictures. Yeah, exactly. And so you just, the, the two go together in a metaphor. It's a word, but also has, it's also a symbol. And so you just start with the one that's most natural for the client and go from there. Right, lovely. Um, who's been the greatest influence what, or one of the greatest influences in your work or life? <laughs> a lot of those. I think, um, I think there's uh, two, uh, two that stand out for me. Um, so one was when I was uh, 15. Um, I was um, fairly bright but fairly quiet. Um, I, I, friends tell me I was fun, but I was pretty quiet. <laughs> and I didn't really speak much, and I never really saw myself as a leader. Um, because leaders I always uh, I observed in my at that age were more extroverted, more popular, more all kinds of things I didn't think I was. And then there was a woman in a group I, w- I belonged to who um, asked me to say a few words before the dinner at our uh, leadership thing we were doing, and I was petrified because I was the only freshman in the whole uh, group. And so I, I said my words, and then all these other older kids came by and said, wow, I never could have done that, and... And so and that was the first time in my life I thought, oh, somebody thinks I have something to say. And so that was an influence for me. And again, I think we, uh, our clients are just people. They, what they want is actually smaller than we realize. And often it's just, I want somebody to see me. I want somebody to know me, to hear me, to be with me. 
Uh, and so I always think of, of Mrs. T, Caroline, uh, when, uh, when I think about that. And then I think the second thing more sort of intellectually, um, I, uh, uh, Roger Shank wrote a book um, called So Tell Me a Story um, in the 90s. And he's a cognitive scientist before all the neuroscience stuff. But, and he's kind of a strange guy. I've interviewed him later in life, and he's really eccentric, but really brilliant. But his whole thing helping me under, it helped me to make the connection between our stories and our realities that we created around us. And then I could bring in people like Paulo Freire and others and looking at how do we help people recognize the way in which their stories are socially constructed, the way they're neurologically constructed, the way they're somatically constructed. And so how the story no longer becomes like a fairy tale in a book, but a lived entity that not only is alive in a coaching session, but is malleable and you can actually do something with it. And so it just really helped me, like, re- helped me rethink what stories actually were. And uh, yeah, so that was really um, influential in the very, very beginning of the roots of narrative coaching. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. Let's say a leader was listening to this now and they think, well, yeah, so I did leaders coach and mm-hmm. I've been taught a coaching approach to leadership. Um, if you could distill the narrative approach in one or two ways, one or two principles that a leader of team members was able to use with them, what might that be? <clears throat> so one is we know a lot about what makes a good story. And so we... Uh, through different pieces of research and writing we've done, we have sort of a model that we use to help leaders be more effective, not in sort of telling stories, again, because sometimes that falls into the cliche of, oh, I have to be sort of glib and yeah. have you know tell stories. And no, it's more about, you know, in a crowded workday, how do you get people's attention? And so we use some of Carl Weick's research on firefighting teams in the bush and why some of them died. And, and often it was a failure of communication and a failure of, of hearing communication. And so we just, we've done that for a lot of the big banks here in Australia and a number of other places of, in the moment, how do you help people communicate succinctly through a narrative format? And that's um, done really well for us. And the second thing that is sort of on the opposite side of that in some ways is we... Um, the leaders, the most common fear leaders have around narrative coaching is they imagine it's like, I mean, I have to sit there all day and listen to people talk and tell stories to me. And I said, well, if people are taking a long time to tell stories to you, it probably means you're not listening very well. <laughs> and so we teach them about how, how to listen to a story that actually enables them to understand what is most important for the storyteller and how to get that most important piece into the room. And so I think about um, a leader that when I did a lot of work here for uh, my dear friends at PwC, we had a woman who was a partner in our program. And she was a good participant, but again, was like a lot of them, they go to lots of these programs. And it was back in the sort of the middle of the GFC when it was in Australia. Mm-hmm. And she was going to speak to the CEO and his team of a very large family-owned business. And she had prepared this gigantic document as they are wont to do. And she was getting ready to present that document. And then she stopped. She goes, oh, I was just in one of David's workshops. Like, what would he tell me to do? Oh, yeah, put my book down and look at the person. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) How long was the course? (laughs) 
Uh, but, That's and, fantastic. No, yeah. She really, she really got the point, and so yeah. she, she just caught herself and put the book back down and stopped and looked up and said to the CEO, "How how's it going?" And then he basically, long story short, he basically had said to them, um, "I believe that no matter what I do, I cannot salvage my co- my family's business, and my, I will be the f- um, and under my watch, my three generations of my family's business is going down." And so then she closed up the book altogether and put it on the floor and said, let's have a different conversation then. And so she basically listened to him for half an hour and then said, we have, um, you've been a faithful client of ours. We have people in our firm who specialize in this and we'd like to give, donate some time to you to help you figure out how to approach this. And then if we can be of further assistance, we can talk about that. But if the things we've prepared for you are really good and they will be helpful, but not enough, I realize that now. But it seems like we need a different conversation here. What a beautiful example. Yeah. And again, I guess it's that it's that radical presence yeah. and being prepared to, to listen. And to understand what is this, going back to, what does this person need most right now? Not my tax strategies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, and I think I've, Read it in some of the work um, you've done around in your heart of heart. What what is it that you want right now? Which mm-hmm. is what what do you need right now? Yeah. So, I have a big interest and passion in career transition, helping uh-huh. people. You know, if they've got one life on this earth in this mm-hmm. body, then how do they consciously choose to make mm-hmm. the best of themselves, whatever that is for them? And you know the from kids we're asked what we want to be when we grow up and it's not a very useful paradigm and no. a lot of people come into career transition coaching because they are frustrated that they haven't found that answer and mm-hmm. so part of what we'll do is reframe that for them that perhaps that's the wrong question and and help them to see that they're this evolving narrative mm-hmm. how have you seen narrative coaching used in that career transition space mm-hmm. in an effective way yeah, so one of the things that we do is, um, in any case, um, is we're trying to help our clients figure out what is the um, most useful focus for our conversation. Yeah. And what narrative frame would be helpful right now. And so for many of the folks who have used this in the career space, uh, paradoxically, talking about your career is probably the wrong frame. Because again, it, as you said, it just it's a dead end street for a lot of people. If I knew that, I'd be doing something else, and I can't figure out what else I need to be doing. So we, in in the narrative coaching space, we would look at well, so what is the narrative frame? And it usually has to do with what's important to you at this stage of your life. So we create some criteria. Um, well, I'm feeling restless and a bit bored with wor- working. I want to be more creative. I, my financial needs are not that high right now, or my financial needs are very high. Uh, my you know, my my partner is not feeling well. She has an illness, and so I need to kind of double duty. So I need a job that pays well but doesn't take too much extra time from me. And so we're basically creating a description of the container in which they'd like the career to sit. And that, for me, helps people to make um, both more lateral choices that they wouldn't have otherwise th- thought of, but also more prudent choices because they realize, okay, now not now is not the time to set up a consulting practice, mm-hmm. perhaps, right? Or maybe there's a past role you had, which isn't ideal, maybe for you personally in terms of your trajectory of your life, but sort of ticks all the other boxes of what really matters to you right now. And so the career, a career is just a means to an end. So you have to figure out what the end is. <laughs> and and um, 
And then, then there can be sometimes there are harder questions. And so, you know, some questions like, do you really need that much money? Mm-hmm. And for whom are you making all that money? And is that is that sabotaging some of your other life needs by focusing so much mo- on money, for example? Um, yeah. Lovely. So it's that art of possibility with the reality of life, that perspective right. in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in early childhood education, I know there's a lot of work done around strengths, around growth mindset. If we're looking to increase that equality of opportunity across the human race. Mm-hmm. Um, what could be done with narrative work in early childhood, like whether it's primary school or, or even high school? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I, I have a daughter. question. Yeah, no. <laughs> How many hours do we have to answer that question? No, so I have a daughter that um, uh, uh, nearly finishing high school, and I listen to her horror stories about how she spends her day at school. And I said, what an utter waste of time. And so for me, um, I used to consult a lot to early childhood programs um, for for low socioeconomic families, but also families of disabled children. And so um, one of the big distinctions we helped make for these programs is a shift from a medical model to a coaching model in terms of how they approach their job. And... Um, and the ones that could do that just made extraordinary gains in their results for their kids and their families. And so for me, um, I, what we know from attachment theory is that the percentage of people that feel secure most of the time has dropped significantly in the last 20 years and will continue to drop as time goes on. And so first and foremost, we need to create a rich, safe environment where kids can just be themselves, play draw, do music, try things, learn about themselves, learn about each other. It has nothing really to do with um, the mechanics of preparing them to go to work, which is what most school does. And so you have people that go to work that are emotionally unintelligent, um, not really clear who they are, don't know how to get along with different people. As the world becomes more polarized, that becomes even more important. And so really where narrative coaching is an appreciation of different narratives, an appreciation of respect for other people, the ability to um, deal with conflict in new ways, but more importantly, just to have a core sense of self and of self with others and a sense of what they think of as a safe haven and a secure base from which to grow. That's the fundamental building block for everything. And it's something we don't teach in schools. And we're more about content. And... Um, we all know adult clients who have, are experts in content but couldn't manage a team to save their life because they didn't learn those other skills. Yeah. Wonderful. And, and it's similar with the conversations. You know, we teach leaders how to have good quality conversations and, and that's, we're not taught that at school. No. And, and again, we go back to um, people know how to do this. They just can't find their way to a state from which to operate that would be conducive to having a good conversation. So if I feel like I need to defend myself against you or I need to be superior to you or I need to get my agenda across or are things done, whatever skills you taught me are going to go out the window because I've got other pressures which are going to dominate how I show up. If I need you and I want you to help me and that we're in this together, then it moves, you move to a different physiological state in your breathing, in your openness, in your way of being in the conversation, and it makes so much more possible. 
and therefore able to respond more creatively right. and less reactively. There's more spaciousness in your mind and your heart. You can hear things. Think. People will say the exact same words they may have said 10 minutes ago, but now you hear them yeah. and hear them very differently than otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So although you're best known for narrative coaching, you studied human dynamics yeah. for 30 years. Yes. And as I mentioned earlier, you founded the Moment Institute to bring, in your words, this interdisciplinary approach to the world at a time when we need new narratives about what it means to be human together, mm -hmm. which is really what you just touched on there as well. That quite beautiful concept, I feel, is, is both simple and profound. If you were to get the opportunity to coach a world leader, and mm -hmm. I truly am not referring to any particular one, um, <laughs> who is resistant to move from a thinking of those old institutions versus the new ecosystems, again, to use your language, how might a narrative approach help in that particular coaching assignment? Yeah, it's a big question. I'd want to have a leader who's even remotely open to coaching. That's we don't have a lot of those at the moment. Uh, unfortunately, the kind of leaders we're getting now are often um, against, actually antithetical to coaching in many ways. And so for me, if I found one, so um, uh, uh, I was always a big fan of Merkel in Germany. As yeah. uh, I didn't always agree with everything that she did, but I kept explaining to all my German friends, you do realize she's the only sane <laughs> Western leader we have at the moment. So... Um, and, I th and so I think one of the things that she did well was she just held the bigger picture all of the time and fought for the bigger picture and the longer-term so view. True. And I think the second thing that I would work with them on from a narrative coaching perspective is that they need, uh, they're under the, under the gun and under the limelight 24-7. So there's no place for them to rest and just be themselves and think clearly. And so I would encourage them to have more time out I would encourage them to find some smaller wins that they can use as sort of um, what it, what it, we, we call it, islands of sanity. Um, and so as a way to realize that not everything's going down in flames, <laughs> not everything's a trouble, there's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things. And so I would just give them more opportunities to tell some other kinds of stories and to really look at um, both... And the thing about humans is that we have a very narrow window of, 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 um, of time. And we're very myop myopic about time. And so a lot of the Native Americans in the state, and I know I'm doing a couple of projects here with the Aboriginal community, same thing, where they, you know, they have millennia of stories and time with land and perspective on time. And so I think I would, I would coach a leader to say, look at the history of your own country. Look at the future of your own country. And, and you, you have to uh, address the political and social and media realities in which you live, but you can actually define that in ways that you would like, which again means you need some projects and initiatives which are not under the usual scrutiny, but actually demonstrate the kind of spaciousness you're trying to create as a leader. Uh, and because the reality is that if I were coaching them is to say that if everybody waits for somebody else to go first, we're all going to come in last. Mm. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. One more question. Sure. Um, back to thinking about the coaching community, because I imagine a lot of coaches will be listening to this. In your heart of hearts, mm -hmm. what would you wish for the coaching profession? 
going forward? Well, um, as as you know, I've I've spent nearly twenty years sort of um, jousting at the coaching profession, and with some success and some not. But um, for me, it was, at the time, coaching was the closest I could come to the work I was already doing, anyways. And there was all of a sudden a profession that matched enough. And uh, I also uh, here in Sydney, actually, when I first did my um, public presentation on narrative coaching, like the very first one I ever did. It was really handy because the uh, I did a demonstration at the end of that ICF meeting in here in Sydney, and was it, I never de- demonstrated that work in public, and I thought it went really extraordinarily well. Um, people were a bit mystified by part of it because it didn't recognize what I was doing in some ways. But then they had a really um, a more traditional master coach on as part of their usual ICF uh, program after me, and she uh, was very good, and she was also very extroverted and very goal-oriented and very driven and very method-focused. And and her gift to me was I said, I don't do any of those things. And then the contrast between myself and her was really quite clear. And so one of the things, so I feel like I've, um, I will continue to cr- contribute to coaching, and I'm doing this, and I'm, um, I'm doing a, another session to, um, tomorrow night uh, for another coaching group. So I'll continue to grow because, and give to that community because there are a lot of the, my friends and colleagues, and they're trying to do a lot of good things in the world. And at the same time, in our new business, we're actually building whole lines of business that have nothing to do with coaching. Because we did, again, we realize uh, the next my next book is on integrative development, which is bringing together training, coaching, and OD into one practice and one person. And so, for me, what I realize is that um, my heart of hearts wish for coaches is that recognizing that coaching is just a way of being, it's a way of talking mm-hmm. for which we get paid. But there's a whole bunches of other ways we could get paid to show up in different ways. And we can't just all be competing for the same C-suite clients or team coaching projects. That's important, but it's just a drop in the bucket because when we do that, we're always going to be in a reactive space where we're responding to whatever's going on for the client. And so we're just basically following the clients around. And yeah, we can help them be more proactive and do some new things, but we're at their whim of what they want to work on. And so I, I see... Um, coaching becoming more proactive, more generative, and so we're the in the institute. We're looking at three basic pillars. One is spiritual maturity to be able to work this way. One is coaching capability, and the third one is what we call so- social generativity, the ability to go make a difference with your coaching, not through charity. That's just one way, but through the very nature by which we. Um, work and so we're looking at then creating a sort of a social measure for every one of our client projects and if they don't have a social measure built in then we don't take them as clients right wonderful and the name of the book again my book is just narrative coaching the definitive Mm -hmm. guide yeah yeah and coming out when did you say Uh, the the narrative coaching books uh, came out last year and the integrative development book will be out next year next year yeah Yeah. okay yeah and again we'll put that in the show notes great um thank you so much for your time today it's been fascinating and i'm sure there's lots of great insights that will both um enthuse and (laughs) um prod at um lots of us coaches out there thank you thank you very much we hope you liked today's episode If you'd like to get the next episode automatically, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please leave your feedback 
questions and a five-star review. Share this podcast with whoever you think would benefit from the topics we cover. Thank you to our hosts and special guests for the great insights gained in today's episode.